0: Welcome back to the program. In Heart of Darkness, Conrad spoke of exploring upriver with a general sense of vague and oppressive wonder, like a weary pilgrimage amongst hints of nightmare. My guest, Paul Rosalie, made his own journey into his own Heart of Darkness as he engaged in an extraordinary adventure into the uncharted tributaries of the Western Amazon. He's written about his experiences and, again paraphrasing Conrad, conveys the life sensation of his existence— that which gives his story its truth, its meaning, and its subtle and penetrating essence. Paul Rosalie is a naturalist and explorer. He uses tourism to support rainforest conservation and has worked on conservation projects in tropical ecosystems around the world. It is my pleasure to welcome Paul Rosalie here to talk about his new work, Mother of God An Extraordinary Journey into the Uncharted Tributaries of the Western Amazon. Paul Rosalie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you here. Tell us, first of all, Paul, how you got into the exploration business, how uh, what for many people is a fantasy of what they like would like to do turned into a reality for you.
1: Uh, um, I, I guess it started, I, surprisingly, I mean, when I was maybe five years old. I mean, my favorite thing to do as a little kid was to go on a hike, and my parents would take me out and look for frogs, and then as a teenager, you know, I would go out and spend days getting lost in the woods of New York. And you know I then you know got lucky enough to go out to Colorado um but i just I always wanted to go bigger. I kept wanting to go bigger, and for me, it's all about the wildlife so um naturally i was I was just drawn to drawn to the Amazon, and of course, when you like rainforest and you like wildlife, you hear that they're disappearing, so you want to get there' you know i I always had this urgency that I wanted to get there so um you know getting into the adventure and wildlife you know field just sort of happened as 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 a result of of, that's, that's where my passion is that's what I love doing so I just did it
0: and in this journey this particular journey on the western Amazon that you write about in, in Mother of God getting there is essentially what it's about it's it's less about the destination than about the process
1: yeah it's uh, unlike a mountain when you're in the Amazon most of it's flat so there, there, there almost is no destination and um, yeah it's all about it's all about getting there you know the just just trying to reach a certain river in the amazon you could be on a boat for for a week going up some small tributary and you know running into logs underwater and you have to hop out and push the boat and along the way you're seeing different wildlife and having encounters um, so yeah, everything is the journey. So it's uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting down there.
0: The other thing that's different, to continue with the, with your analogy for a moment, different than mountain climbing, for example, is that you do much of this alone, by yourself. There's a certain power in that environment and that loneliness.
1: Well, there are mountain climbers. Uh, one of the best. One of the I guess he's regarded one of the best climbers in the world. I think you pronounce his name, Reinhold Messner. He soloed Everest by himself with no oxygen tanks and no teammates and no satellite phone. And he believes that the purest way to do it, you know, as, as a as a personal experience with you in the mountain, that that's the way to do it. No other people, no communication, you know, just you in the mountain. And that's the way I feel about the jungle. Um, you know, it's it's these unbelievably remote places where sometimes people don't go from decade to decade or I mean, perhaps even centuries. And so when you're out there, it's, um, yeah, the, I love that Conrad quote about oppressive awe because you're walking through this green cathedral where no one goes and you're seeing these, these views and sometimes seeing species that no one's ever seen before And, you know, at night, you have the entire universe above you. There's no lights from a city to to pollute the sky. And it's it's really this incredible experience, and it's terrifying as well. Um, But a lot of times, um, not only do I like to go alone for the purity of the experience, but also I find that on expeditions, when you go with other people, you have to take care of other people. And uh, in the jungle, it's nice to be able to travel light, travel fast, and, uh, you know, be quiet.
0: Talk, talk about what's terrifying at night.
1: Um, the thing with the jungle is that it's not as as scary as people think. A lot of people I tell them about the Amazon, and they say, oh, well, what about piranhas? And I say, well, most piranhas are vegetarians, <laughs> actually. And they say, well, what about anacondas? And I say, well, anacondas really don't usually bother people, usually. Um, you know, in the Amazon, the reality of it is that, you know, some of the most dangerous things are actually when when you have a bad storm, the falling trees the trees are so big and the vines interconnect a lot of the canopy so you can get half a football field falling over at one time as one big tree falls and pulls others down with it so there's just this this power of the jungle it becomes like this this character that you're immersed in and when you're out there there's just you know it's not the wildlife I know that it you know I've had jaguars come up to me in my tent at night and and interact with me. I've had, you know, I, I work with anacondas. I'm not scared of the wildlife, but there's something about the jungle. There's so many explorers that have vanished into the jungle and never been heard from again. Um, even a few scientists who are, you know, working at relatively safe, known research locations, um, just have vanished. The jungle has this way of deleting people from existence. And when you're out there, you just, I don't know. It, it's just, it's a strange thing. You know also we're born we we see people from the day we're born we're born into an emergency room most of us with with family members and then we go to school and we go to work and every day we see hundreds of people for most of us and when you're by yourself for days on end it's it's um I don't know it's just it's a strange it's a strange thing to experience beautiful but strange
0: what about the experience of being even if you're not carrying technology and lots of people with you this sense that even you are bringing modernity into a world that, that really hadn't experienced, that, that in many cases, as you write about, was was really pristine and untouched for, as you say, decades and decades and maybe even longer in many cases.
1: Well, that's why, that's part of the reason I go alone. Because when it's just my, my footsteps on the beach, I feel like I haven't altered that landscape at all. you know. And even if I start a fire at night, um, you know that's a very very minor thing, just a little bit of charcoal left over so i don't want that's what, another reason to go alone is that i don't want to bring you know the sound of a motor in a, in, a, in a hallowed place like that i don't want to pollute that place with that sound and if I go with local people you know they'll they 'll see this as an opportunity to hunt in a place where the hunting is really good so i wouldn't go i wouldn't go with them, and so that's that's a, another big part of the reason that I go alone is that I don't want to change or alter those places.
0: What about when you go and and you photograph them or you're you're doing a documentary, how, how does that impact what what you're doing?
1: I I thought about that for a long time and I've I've had to work at that dynamic because for me I'm a person that um I have pictures of, you know, all different types of wildlife, but I never have a jaguar picture because every time I see one, i'm I'm just so overwhelmed and so so interested in staying in that moment that I don't care about a camera you know so i'm I'm a terrible photojournalist for that reason that I get lost in the moment and i don't wanna you know I don't wanna stop and then try and document it but when you are responsible for protecting a place um you know I sort of see it as well i can I can sort of take a camera and spend some of my time documenting this place so that I can show people what we're losing. Or they'll just never see it. So I'd, I'd rather make the small sacrifice for the for the bigger picture than, than just selfishly enjoy it myself, which, which I do get time to do. I do take days where I don't take pictures and I don't, you know, do anything. And I just go out and, and, and enjoy it with my eyes and my body and, you know, stay in the moment.
0: Talk a little bit about encounters with indigenous people that have happened to you along the way.
1: Well most of my most of my experience down there is owed to um indigenous people. I made good friends with a local guy named JJ who taught me I mean just mind-blowing things about the forest. I mean the medicines and you know they know if you get bitten by a snake what tree to use to cure you if you know if you can't get to a hospital. They know all the edible plants. They I mean it's just it's just absolutely incredible. There's actually a tree down there it's sap is like almost pure hydrocarbons. You slash this tree with a machete and collect the sap in a bottle, pour it into a diesel engine, and the truck will run just off a tree sap. So there's some really amazing stuff down there. And that's the kind of stuff that you really can't learn that. You know, there's not books that are going to teach you that. And, um, and even if they did, you know, recognizing it in the field. So the indigenous training that I've gotten down there is just amazing and the knowledge that they have. But... You know then I assume you're also asking about about the uh the less the less contacted <laughs> right. um groups out there, and in the Madre de Dios and in the West Amazon, there are still groups pockets where there are nomadic isolated tribes of Indians, and these are people that since since the Spanish arrived to South America um in the fifteen hundreds they've been fighting to remain isolated and then when the rubber boom happened at the turn of the century, like early nineteen hundreds you know, again, you had these rubber barons coming in and trying to make slaves out of the people. And these most most tribes succumbed to that. Most tribes were affected and really be, became slaves. These people said no, and these people defended themselves. And they are um, they're dangerous for outsiders, and outsiders are dangerous for them because their virgin populations, even our common cold, could wipe out an entire tribe. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's kind of a sticky situation down there especially because they can't advocate for themselves. So when the Peruvian government or Ecuadorian government is making a decision, these people have no representation because they have no voice. So, um, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty interesting people, and they're still living out there in these remote places. So avoiding them is a big, is a big deal. And as, as, uh, as the book describes, I was unsuccessful in avoiding them once.
0: Give us a little sense of the geography and sense of place of this Madre de Dios region.
1: The name of the book, Mother of God, means Madre de Dios, which is, this is, this is the, the Amazon starts in this region, the west. The very, you know, you have the, the glacial high peaks of the Andes, and you have that glacier meltwater falling from the mountains down through cloud forest, and then down onto the lowland tropical rainforest. So you have these three really distinct temperature zones and really uh, that's pretty, a pretty unique thing to go from frigid snow caps down to tropical rainforest in just a few miles and that's what caused that's what starts that's the engine that runs the Amazon you know so this is this is this is the part that controls the system that gives our planet a fifth of its clean water and a fifth of its oxygen so in terms of wildlife conservation in terms of culture and in terms of you know, ecosystem services that we all need, it really comes down to it, it, that this is one of the, the most important places on Earth, and along with being one of the most beautiful. You have the, the world record in butterflies, world record in birds, world record in reptiles and amphibians. There's more life here than anywhere else. So it's really, you know, when you say Mother of God, um, a lot of us, you know, that that name is sort of like, it's sort of a romantic way of saying that this is where everything starts.
0: What sense do you have when you're there, because it's far more than just the listing of the birds and the butterflies and everything else, but this sense of of overwhelming biodiversity
1: you you are so immersed in it when you're in the jungle um, that you for instance, on a night walk this was about uh, a few weeks ago i just I just got back and a few weeks ago i was in a swamp at night, and in the rainy season, there are invisible rainbows of frogs. We were in this one swamp, and we counted over 16 different species of frogs. All of them, orange and reds and greens and blacks. I mean, just incredibly brilliant frogs. If you can picture this, over this green lake in the middle of the night, beneath 150 feet of canopy, and as we're shining our flashlights, you you're you know you're up to your waist in water, and there's caiman crocodiles swimming swimming around you in the water, there's snakes moving through the canopy, there's night monkeys moving through the canopy, your senses, your eyes become less important, and your smell and your hearing become far more amplified and sensitive. And you see these frogs mating and jumping and laying eggs, and you see the, frog, the snakes in the canopy going after the night monkeys, and we saw a spider that was the size of my hand eating one of the frogs. And then there was another spider that was walking across the water and grabbed a fish, and so you get the sense immediately that you are in this system. And what's really cool about it is that these things are communicating, and you're, where our senses are so so disadvantaged. You know, these things have been developing for millions of years, and they're communicating vocally in frequencies that we can't hear. They have camouflage that we can't detect. They're they're. Releasing, you know, pheromones and scent, scent um, indicators that that we can't sense. So there's so much happening around you, and you 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 start to pick up on it after a while, and it's it's absolutely incredible. And the you know you start to realize different different encounters make you realize that you're also not the apex predator there anymore. You know, um, a human on his own two feet without without other people, without backup. You know, if any of the big Amazon predators. You know, a black caiman is a is essentially an eighteen foot alligator. Um, you know that we, you're you're not you're not top dog anymore. <laughs> and being in a swamp at night with all of that incredibly beautiful avatar looking life and these giant predators is really a, a transformative experience.
0: Describe what you write about as this floating forest.
1: When we began researching anacondas, we went on this expedition that we felt was really successful and we caught this 15-foot, big, fat female anaconda. And we came back, and we were like, wow, we finally found the true giant. I mean, I just couldn't believe the size of this snake. Um, I'd never seen anything like it, and I've worked with snakes my whole life. And when we came back and showed the pictures to the rest of the community, my my friend JJ's father said, he wasn't, he wasn't impressed. He saw the pictures, and he was like, that's the smallest anacondita I've ever seen. And... He said, if you want to be real men, and if you want to see a real snake, you go to this place. And he told us how to get there. And when we went, what we found was this, you know, it took, us, it took us a while to get there. We didn't get there until night, which is a very spooky time to encounter a completely unique ecosystem. And really what happened was we got to the edge of the forest, and it looked like maybe there was a cliff or something, because we could see the canopy but then we realized that we were standing at the edge of a lake and there were trees growing from the bottom of the lake. So, and the lake was so deep that the top of those trees were at our eye level. So it's a literally a floating forest where you have a lake with trees growing from the bottom of it. So you're walking through a canopy and then there's smaller trees growing on these floating islands of grass. It's, it's, a pretty trippy environment, and we started exploring it, and we really no one else had been here before, and there's nothing else like this in the Amazon. And we discovered that this is a place where some of the biggest snakes on Earth are coming to interact and breed. And on that first night, we encountered a snake that was easily over 22 feet. I don't want to guess more than that because I didn't actually get to measure it, but what I we, the measurement I do have is that I have a six-foot wingspan from fingertip to fingertip is six feet and when i jumped on this snake you know i mean if we could, if we could have measured her um you know you mm-hmm. measure a 30 foot snake you got the front cover national geographic so when i did jump on her um the one measurement that i got was that my six foot wingspan i couldn't close my arms around her that's how thick she was um so this floating forest is just this incredible place with unusually large anacondas
0: do you get to a point that you feel like you've seen so much and it's so dramatic, for example, this place, this floating forest you just talked about, that other things pale by comparison?
1: I don't, not at all. In fact, you know, I'm in New York right now and the winter is winding down and I'm actually like, I'm waiting for, I'm very busy this week with book events and everything else and we're actually waiting for next week because the snapping turtles and, and black rat snakes that live in New York are going to be coming out of hibernation soon, and I can't wait to go find them. Um, and I think that, for me, as long as I keep learning, I'm still excited, you know, where we keep learning about the anacondas and just like I keep learning about the family of foxes that lives behind my house in New York. You know, it's to me, it's you never... The more you experience, you know, and it's not about the adrenaline. I mean, that, that those, those 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 crazy encounters are great, and they're great stories and they're great memories to have. But I think that the true, the true goal when you go out as a person that loves wildlife is to learn more about it. And, um, you know, for us and me and all the scientists and my friends, we go out, you know, and whether we're tracking tigers and elephants or whether we're looking for some species of stick bug, you know, we're equally excited. It's just it's about, it's about learning about what it is and, you know, really, especially in the Amazon. Once you, I mean, I've been there for almost 10 years now, and I feel like it took me 10 years to learn how little I know. And how much more there is to study like you know people spend lifetimes trying to understand the food web of a single swamp you know it's it's completely you know it's just such it's just, there's just so much there that i don't think i think i'm going to be 70 years old and i'm going to feel like i'm just running out of time
0: well it's good then that you got an early start indeed <laughs> yeah talk a little bit about the dangers that the amazon and even places as deep as as you visited the dangers they face
1: well, I mean, today, the, the, the fact is that we, you know, I mean, you have to look at it when, when Europeans came to North America. From, the, from, from pre-Columbus until now, we've deforested over 95% of the forest that used to be on the U.S. So you think about that for a second. And there's some pretty big forests here still. So really, the whole continent was a forest. Um, and we kind of, you know, we kind of chewed all that up. We killed the bison. We killed the passenger pigeons. We, we caused a lot of the things that made this continent this continent. We we sort of got rid of them. And, you know, the, the Dust Bowl was a result of that, which thankfully we got through. But the in the Amazon, you know, again, you have this system that everything is interconnected. Those frogs in the swamp and the trees that, you know, are growing out of those swamps and then you take that over the rivers and the 4,000 miles across the whole basin out to the Atlantic Ocean, Um, it's not a system that we can live without. But in the Amazon, you have all developing countries sort of dividing up the Amazon, Peru and Ecuador and Brazil and Venezuela. And it's up to the, you know, discretion or indiscretion of these countries to protect or to profit from their forests. And most of them, you know, would choose to profit. So you have people coming in building roads and once once you build a road, um, you know, people have access. You have loggers and gold miners. The loggers obviously take the trees, the gold miners suck up the ground and they use mercury to bind the the gold is found in dust in the in the Amazon. So they have to use mercury in the sand and water to, to bind the gold and then they drop the mercury into the water. So you get these completely ruined polluted river systems that will never recover. Um, so we're pretty we're pretty efficiently destroying these places, and different cultures have different values, but it's a pretty universal value, whether you're in Europe or the u s or South America or even asia um, to to realize that there's 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 a value to wilderness. I mean, you look in the u s how many millions upon millions of people visit our national parks each year? people you know people enjoy and have a spiritual connection to nature um aside from the fact that we need the services that it provides like clean water and clean air and you know um other things so in the amazon it's just you know that's that's another reason that I'm going to these places that's a reason that I'm documenting these places um you know for me I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't usually choose to you know writing a book is you know requires you to sit for 2 years writing really And, um, you know, for me, I'm a field guy, I like to be out in the jungle, but it's getting, these places are disappearing fast. And in the book, the reason it took me as long as it did to access such a wild place was because they're becoming more and more rare. And so the ones that are left are left because they're really difficult to get to. And, uh, you know, protecting those places, I mean, I I personally, I would find the world very boring if I knew that there was places where they're where there wasn't, you know, if everything was just parking lots and streets, you know, and shopping malls, I think I'd find the the world pretty boring, and I think a lot of people would agree with me on that. You know, we need those places. We need those places that don't have our fingerprint on them and that continue to exist for their
0: own reasons. You talk about the Trans-Amazon Highway creeping in ever so slowly but almost inevitably towards even the places that you talk about in the book.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, that was a major—that highway originally— that monster originally raised its head in the 70s, um, funded by the World Bank, and then environmentalists around the world went crazy. As did a lot of a lot, any rational person went crazy because when they cut this road, um, they basically took outsiders and extractors and put them straight into the jungle, where tribes, entire entire cultures of indigenous people, were wiped out because of this road where they had previously been living in the jungle and been, you know, in prosperity and lost in the forest. And then all of a sudden they got these gold miners and ranchers who were like, yo, we're out here. And it was the Wild West. They wanted land. And so the the guys that weren't, the, the tribes that weren't just outright slaughtered got outside diseases like malaria and, and you know, flu, flu and everything else, and they died. And then just the ecological and the social and everything else, the impacts of this road were horrendous, so they canceled it. But then in the last few years, they decided, you know, now Brazil doesn't need the funding of the World Bank. Brazil's moving up in the world. So they funded it themselves. And now they, now the Trans-Amazon Highway, for the first time in history, the heart of the Amazon is connected by a land trade route to Asia. And we know that the Chinese sense of environmental responsibility is not not really, it not, doesn't really exist. Um, so the things that are happening are scary. And with this new road, you know, Again, once you cut a road, people have access to the forest and there's a thing called like a we call it like a fishbone effect where once you cut one road, then numerous other roads start popping out at right angles. And that's what we're seeing happen across the Amazon now. It's just rapid deforestation. And uh, you know, we, we have to stop it. It's not I don't think it needs to be like a a massive sob story that we all, you know, hold hands and sing kumbaya, but it's something that we need to find a solution for because in terms of whether, you know, the Carl Sagan quote, whatever, you're else, whatever else you're interested in is not going to happen if you can't breathe the water, breathe the air, and drink the water. So, you know, this. if we mess up the Amazon, um, a lot of experts say that, you know, because it's a self-sustaining moisture system, if you cut too much of the forest, then that moisture system in the clouds isn't going to be able to sustain the forest that exists, and the whole, the whole cycle is going to fall apart. And then it's gonna dry out and burn. So if you lose the Amazon and the Amazon rainforest becomes the Amazon desert, the impacts on that for global climate and atmospheric equilibrium and you know, clean water, oxygen, along with the fact that we lost, you know, the greatest masterpiece of biodiversity. Um, those those are some pretty harsh consequences that I don't think anybody wants. You know, whether you're whether you're an oil whether you're an oil guy or a gold guy or, you know, whatever it is or a country leader or a citizen, you know, nobody, nobody, I think, wants to deal with that sort of thing. So I'm hoping that if we're smart enough to do all the cool things that we're smart enough to do at this point, that, uh, you know, sort of organizing everybody to, to, to protect this thing, like it or not, should be on the, the front plate for uh, everybody as a global society.
0: And looking at it from the other direction, what is the impact, if any, that the climate change that we're already seeing, what, what impact is that having on the Amazon?
1: You know, that's um I'm I'm fascinated with climate change because my conservation career has been very much based on things that I can tangibly feel and touch. I'm one of those people that like if someone says don't don't go here because this will happen, I go there because I have to see if it'll happen. I just everything I have to try out for myself. And um, you know, climate change, I think like a lot of other people, I took a you know, I know that we're destroying all of our clean water and I know that we're, you know, Tigers are almost endangered, and these are the things that I deal with day to day because and I've seen these things and experienced them. Um, but with climate change, you know you're relying on other people's information to sort of make some really important decisions. And you know I started in the Amazon talking to old old you know older people, people that were eighty years old, ninety years old, and they say that that what what they see today is not the way it was back in the day. They said there was more rain um the droughts in the amazon were not as severe and similarly the flooding wasn't as severe you know the a lot of people get we in new york this year we had a lot of snow and everybody was saying well what you know certain people were saying what global warming you know there's so much snow on the ground and that's not really the point it's that it's that nature weather has been a constant for for really thousands of years i mean farmers have relied on the rains to come at a certain time of year as well as the the dry seasons and when you talk to I work a lot as well as the Amazon, I work a lot in India, and when you talk to octogenarian farmers who've been around, and they remember what their fathers experienced as farmers we're not living in the same world. And I think that that sort of gener, generational amnesia that we all have, you know, we, we all look at the world as we see it. You know, I grew up again, I grew up in New York. I never knew that the trees that I grew up, you know hiking through in the woods. Those were baby trees. I didn't realize what a mature oak tree looks like. You know? So these, those forests had been cut down. So I didn't realize that I was living in a depleted environment. I also never saw a bald eagle until I was in my 20s. And I just figured that they're supposed to live somewhere else, like Alaska or somewhere romantic like Montana. But bald eagles were in New York. And then in the 70s, we had the DDT crisis that, that wiped out a lot of the bald eagles, and we almost lost the species. So, you know, there's this thing where people don't see the change that's happening because of the generation gap. And uh, in the Amazon, it's it's definitely changing, and it's changing rapidly.
0: Paul Rosalie, the book is Mother of God, An Extraordinary Journey into the Uncharted Tributaries of the Western Amazon. Paul, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, yeah, Thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.